Pages of Pim Better Podcast. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, and this is episode number 58, The Last Honey Hunter and Other Stories from Nepal with Ben Ayers. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in, whether this is your first time or whether you are a frequent listener and subscriber. I appreciate you just the same. Okay, so... When was it, man? Maybe January-ish, I went to the Banff Film Festival, which tours around the country. It stopped in Manhattan. And one of the films that I was really struck by was a film called The Last Honey Hunter. We're going to get into that in this episode, so I'm not going to explain much of it now. But I don't remember exactly what I was doing. I might have just Googled the title of of the film, I might have put it into the, the Instagram search. And somehow I came across Ben. Ben has um, a really amazing Instagram that is essentially telling the story of his life and his work in Nepal. It probably sounds kind of cheesy calling an Instagram account poetic, but that really is what it is. And it makes sense. I, I didn't know this about Ben, but he explains how um, he had been studying poetry when he was younger. So uh, that completely makes sense. Uh, His pictures are beautiful. He has really poignant things to say about life. And the work that he's done on these films is incredible. Um, Check out the show notes for for all that uh, information about the films and to check out his social media account. Um, But I was, you know, Another person that I'm just really inspired by and, and grateful to have on the, on the podcast and, and really honored to have on. And um, I'm appreciative that he gave his time and, and he took a chance on me. I wanted to read one of his posts, actually. I've, I've done this once or twice before. Um, I don't really want to embarrass the guest, so I'll, I'll read it without them listening, maybe. Uh, but this is from 2017. And I just thought this was really beautiful and uh, I wanted to share it with you. So here it is. One of the hardest aspects of living abroad is the incredible distance between myself and my family. It's as if my childhood and formative years were written in a language that I once knew, but now only comes to me in dreams. It often feels fractured and rootless, plastered together with Skype calls and texts, occasional visits, the hangings on, But voids collect dirt. I found that even the deepest fractures in my life are quickly filled with strange and delightful flowers. Nepal has given me a dozen new and real families, children who see me through the dreamy lenses of their days. Yesterday I performed the official duties of an uncle and cut Alex Dawa's hair for the first time, marking a small transition that I don't entirely understand. It was a tender and sacred moment. We were all together. We lit candles and made offerings. We laughed and passed the scissors. There were tears and there were flowers. We grow where we break. I mean, that, come on. That, that, that summarizes what his, what his, uh, what his art and, and his work uh, makes me feel. And so, again, I recommend you checking out those show notes and, and, and checking out all of the, the, the things that, 
that Ben is involved in. Uh, was really, really fascinated by some of the the political information about Nepal and some of the historical information that he gave. So uh, I loved this one. Folks, I am on Patreon. Uh, you now know, if you are listening to every episode, that I'm going to be jobless and out in the world and hopefully bringing you many, many more episodes. In fact, Ben gave me some really cool ideas uh, for when I'm, I'm passing through Nepal and some cool people that maybe I should try to get on the podcast. Um, all those things take money. As you know, I uh, have some production costs and things like that. So if you're able to help out in any way, even if it's a buck, you can uh, subscribe to my Patreon account at patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. But listen, I know that there's content coming at you from every single direction nowadays. There's a zillion in one podcast. So if you can't afford it, but you still enjoy listening, I really, really appreciate you. And yeah, you know, only do what you can do. All right, folks, enjoy this one with Ben because I sure did. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, I went to the Banff Film Fest here in New York, and I saw a film called The Last Honey Hunter. I don't know how I found you. I think maybe I, I, had, I had thrown it into Instagram or something like that, the, the title of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm one of the first people who will criticize social media, but Instagram has been a really, really valuable tool for, for the podcast. So uh, really glad that I came across your profile it maybe sounds corny, um, but yeah. the content that you have on there is, is really beautiful, and the things that you write are, are, are really incredible. So um, glad I found you, man. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's yeah, it is amazing how uh, connected the world is now. How the ways that we find each other are totally different yeah. than they used to be. It's it's really it can be really exciting. You're from New Hampshire or Vermont? Yeah, I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, and, but I've, I've lived about just about the past 20 years, uh, in Nepal. And I currently, when I'm in the States, I base out of Vermont. That's where my girlfriend is. So Nepal, tell me about how this adventure got started and, and your first time going there. I first went to Nepal, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up kind of a middle class white kid in New Hampshire who was into the outdoors and climbing. And so I went to Nepal when I did like a study abroad program when I was in college. And I initially went over because of um, my sort of, uh, I, I went over because I was sort of a fledgling climber and I had all these great Himalayan ambitions. And, you know, Nepal sort of had that, that mystique, you know, that drew me over. And when I was over there as a student, um, I, when I was first going on into the mountains and sort of looking to figure out how I was going to climb, I was really blown away by actually the way the lives of the porters and the Sherpas and the people who worked on Himalayan expeditions. 
And that totally distracted me. And, you know, I first went over, as I mentioned, 20 years ago, and I've still been there, and I haven't really climbed anything of any significant sense. And Nepal just really, it was the, the culture and the people and, and the way of life there that just totally, was totally different than it, anything I up with in New England. And I found it so compelling that basically I just uh, then and there dropped everything and devoted my life to being over there. Do you work in media or are you more of like a regional fixer? Um, I, I do a bunch of things. So my career in Nepal started, um, basically I became obsessed with these porters and I started up a sort of a social justice organization that looked at improving workplace conditions for porters. And since that time, um, my day job in Nepal has actually been running uh, NGOs or charitable organizations there that have all been focused on helping uh, improve the lives of people in very, very remote communities in Nepal. Uh, I was a creative writing major and a poet um, in, by training. And so for me, storytelling and journalism and writing was always something I did on the side. And that's led to, through my friendship with Renan Ozturk, I sort of stumbled into film. And so Renan and I, um, who I met just, you know, he came over to Nepal. We climbed together a little bit, became really good friends. And um, through my connection to Renan, we just started telling stories together. And that's how I learned about film. And that's what led to projects like The Last Honey Hunter. And so now I'm, I'm sort of, I, I do both. Uh, I continue to do my work um, in the nonprofit world, but then I also produce and direct documentary films. But they're all focused on Nepal because that's my area of expertise. All right, there's a lot of juicy stuff that I want to unpack from that. The The nonprofit sure. that you founded is DZI? The organization I started was called Portage Progress. I started that in 1999. And in 2007, Portage Progress merged with another nonprofit based out of Colorado called the Z Foundation, spelled DZI. And basically, um, when we joined, the Z Foundation continued work that I had started um, trying to do poverty alleviation in bordering uh, communities in eastern Nepal. I'm assuming that most people who are listening know what a porter is, but can you just explain what the job of a porter is and some of those, you know, workplace hardships that they face and, and, and how you can go about alleviating some of those? Totally. Um, yeah, and, and there is a distinction as well that many people um, in the Western world don't get confused with. There's also the difference between a porter and a Sherpa. Um, porters are basically um, people whose employment is to carry loads. And in Nepal, even now, you know, much of the country uh, lacks access to roads. And so transporting basic supplies, everything from cement to salt uh, is either um, is traditionally done by people in Nepal. And now as the country is changing, you know, there's mules and there's starting to be more access to roads. But basically porters do everything from carrying goods into remote villages to carrying luggage and equipment for trekkers and expedition members. And so porters are, to me, what, what drew me to porters is that portering is basically the it's the most basic form of human labor. You know, you're, it's you and a tump line, you know, basically a rope across your forehead 
And that's what really, you know, is very different from what we see in the Western world and why it's difficult for many Westerners to even conceptualize what that is as an industry. The difference between porters and Sherpas is capital F Sherpas are an ethnic group of Tibetan origin that live primarily in eastern Nepal in the high Himalayan areas. A lowercase f Sherpa is a job title, which is basically a high altitude porter that works just on mountaineering expeditions above base camp. So they still carry loads. It's the same basic mechanism, but high altitude Sherpas are doing it just for mountaineering at altitude. Wow. And so you're helping to um, help people to, to achieve better wages or, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you can't, can't make well, the job safer, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, so, so the work that I initially did, the work I do now, Tim, is a little different, but the work I initially did was just that. When I first went to Paul in 1998, it wasn't uncommon to see porters who were these lowland um, farmers that would be carrying, you know, backpacks or duffel bags or bottles of oxygen or bottles of beer um, all the way up to Everest Base Camp, um, which is, you know, 16,000 feet um, barefoot or in, or in flip-flops. And, you know, it, it's not uncommon to see porters on expeditions um, not being given proper clothing or equipment. So the initial thing that we did was just to try to prevent um, frostbite and death from altitude sickness or exposure, which is still not uncommon um, because the trekking routes go into quite extreme environments. Mm. And while the foreigners are kitted out, um, oftentimes the local workers aren't. So that work, um, so I started, and for about 10 years, I was very active in trying to basically, you know, improving wages and loads was very difficult as a foreigner to implement, but we were just trying to reduce uh, the number of people that was dying. But as with anything in the labor sphere, it became very complicated. Um, there were, you know, the trekking industry itself was somewhat intimidated by the work I was trying to do. Um, Nepal, when I was doing that, was also going through a civil war. And so the porters were also very transient and they came from kind of rebel controlled areas into government controlled areas. So that was politically very sensitive. And then when the civil war ended, um, the Maoist rebels became an official political party and they became very active in the trade union um, sphere, yet they were still on the U.S. terrorist list. And so that became very complicated for me because suddenly these porters were all sort of subscribing to what the U.S. government thought was a terrorist group. And as an American citizen, who was also getting funding at the time from the American government indirectly, um, it became a very tricky situation for me. And so when we merged with the, basically the work, I got out of that labor world because as a foreigner, it wasn't necessarily the right place for me. I wasn't the right person to be enacting these more sensitive changes that have a lot to do with um, things that typically a government does or that these kind of like quasi-political bodies like trade unions do. And so at the time, I was working as well, doing some small work back in the villages where the porters came from with their whole communities, with their kids and their wives who, to a degree, um, living these subsistence lifestyles, had it even harder than, than the men did up in, the, ever, up in you know, the, 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 the high altitude regions where they were trekking. And so 
my interest moved um, to what it looks like to help an entire community instead of just the population of laborers. So the work that we do now is everything from building schools to drinking water projects to introduce, you know, to, to organic agriculture, um, to local governance. We do this great, this wide suite of services that are all determined by the communities themselves. And it's been a really rewarding transition because it's no longer a fight. It's not about trying to stop people from getting hurt. Now we're trying to build and construct things and try to make the future better for people. Well, more fulfilling. That's fascinating, Ben. Um, it's funny. I guess if, in my mind, if I were to think of Nepal, like first thing to come to mind would be, would be Everest and climbing and trekking. Um, yeah. Which totally. obviously is bringing in tourism and tourist dollars. Is there another way that Nepal fits into the global economy? Are there exports? Is there another way mm. that, you know, anything else lending to the GDP of the country? Absolutely. I mean, realistically, the tourism dollars in Nepal are not, um, it's a significant part of the economy, but it's by no means um, the most significant part of the economy at all. In a way, the tourism industry is a minor player compared to what it could be. Nepal's economy is really driven by remittance funding. Um, About 30% of GDP is from Nepali workers um, living abroad. And mm, the vast majority of them are working in countries like Malaysia, Doha, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, um, to a lesser degree, even places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, Nepali workers are um, willing to work very hard for very little money. And so there's a whole remittance economy. And even in these, these villages, um, to get back to the porter thing, you know, what's changing in the portering industry, just to illustrate the answer to your question, is when I was really working, you know, in the, in the early 2000s, you know, in the first decade of the new millennium, um, all the 16-year-old kids on their school holidays or whatever and their 30, 40-year-old parents, you know, fathers, were all out looking for work during the, tre- mm. during the trekking seasons. And it was the only act in town for for any kind of economic gain. And now we're looking about one generation later, there's lots of students that have, lots of children that have gone to school, they've gotten a basic education, they don't want to be farmers, they don't want to be porters because it's hard work, and they all go abroad. It's the only way, really, for anybody to earn a reliable wage in Nepal. So what that does is that pumps billions and billions of dollars back into the Nepali economy, which is great. Um, and that is that dwarfs. I think tourism. Um, my understanding, I think, is tourism is only two or three percent of GDP, whereas again, remittance is about thirty percent. It dwarfs foreign aid, dwarfs any other income source from Nepal, and that's really, from a macroeconomic scale, that's the name of the game right now. Yeah, and that's. I guess you know that's not necessarily an unfamiliar story for other countries around the world. Uh, I mean. Right. I, I would assume most Americans understand that a lot of um, Central American and Latin American labor that occurs in the United States, a lot of that money does go back into those countries to, to support families. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, wow, that's and really... And worse, you know, foreign, foreign aid. If you look at the communities where porters are from or the rural communities in Nepal, the remittance money is, you know, 
10 times what the government budget and foreign aid combined is. And that's really what drives economic development in those places. Wow. Um, again, I'm sure most people are aware, but, and I think I have the year right, but in, in 2015, there was a really devastating earthquake that had a significant impact in Nepal. Were you in country at that time? Yeah. Yeah, I was actually um, visiting my sort of like a host family in the Everest region. So I was um, near Lukla, which is sort of the gateway to Everest, the main um, airport that all the tourists fly into. And I was in a little little village there uh, when the earthquake hit. And uh, that village was pretty much leveled. But thankfully, nobody was killed. Um, it was very, very intense um, experience for me. You know, obviously something I'll never forget. And being in Lukla, um, the next morning, um, I ended up having to, with a few locals um, and a few others, we coordinated this triage hospital at the airport for all of the people that were uh, badly injured in the massive avalanche that swept through Everest Base Camp. Wow. And uh, it was, they were all helicoptered down to us. And it was, yeah, it was a, an unforgettable experience. And then I went back to Kathmandu where my own house um, had been uh, damaged beyond repair. And wow. then did a lot of um, sort of DIY relief work after that uh, based out of Kathmandu. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was there for the whole thing and very, very uh, busy in the reconstruction effort. And I would imagine in the immediate aftermath, is it was it difficult to find water? I mean, was it difficult? Were you were you isolated because roads yeah. were 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 land, like you know landslides took out roads? It was interesting. You know, I mean, you know, Nepal was um, the earthquake in many ways was so much um, less severe than it could have been. Uh, it came on a Saturday afternoon. And, you know, 900,000 900, students didn't have a school to go back to. Wow. None of those kids were in school. And if even 1% of them, if, you know, had been killed, that would have doubled the death toll. If 10% of them had been killed, you know, it would have been 10 times the death toll. And that's not an unrealistic um, projection, had the earthquake come on any other day of the week. Uh, the earthquake also didn't knock out the main airport in Kathmandu. Uh, the road networks were more or less functioning, uh, and the communication networks were functioning. So in terms of being isolated, that was actually not the problem. The problem was that Nepal was sort of, um, everyone from, you know, the Indian army to the American Marines to, well-meaning volunteers from all over the world descended upon Nepal and nobody had any idea what to do. That was the biggest problem was, you know, managing. uh, um, And right after the earthquake, things like water, uh, clean drinking water and so forth was available. But the biggest need was a shelter because the monsoons were, you know, it's April. The monsoons usually start, you know, mid-June. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were homeless. And tarps were the big issue Um, in the beginning. That's what our main distribution focus was, medical care and um, temporary shelter, uh, some food supplies for people who had lost their crops 
the big issue as well is people who lost their home lost, it was right in the planting seasons. So people lost all their seed stock and they didn't have anything to plant. And uh, so those kind of issues were the ones that we were addressing immediately. But it was made much more complicated because the government, um, after a few days, uh, centralized all, um, wanted to centralize control over all the relief efforts. So they stopped allowing um, the import of tarps. Uh, they stopped allowing uh, people to wire money into the country. It all had to, for relief work, all had to be directed to a central fund. And as you know, you know, in Nepal, the government is not known for its uh, efficiency. And that was an incredibly inefficient process. And so all the relief efforts and the work that we were doing, you had to subvert all that to be able to get anything done. Um, and then also, you know, the relief efforts as a whole, you know, like the UN and, and the, the more conventional relief groups were so bureaucratic and slow, um, they weren't able to really take advantage of the, the know-how and the ability of the local communities and the locals. Whereas, you know, our groups, um, I was working with um, kind of the largest, some friends and I started what ended up being the largest kind of local relief effort. We were organizing over Facebook. We were completely self-funded, and we ended up being the fourth largest distributor of, of aid in the first month after the earthquake. Wow! With you know o- overhead that was incredibly, incredibly, you know, basically zero. Right. And that was just about the power of locals. But again, the big bureaucratic organizations had a hard time uh, being that kind of adaptive or responsive. Wow, man. Um, I'm not trying to get political, but. Uh, here, here in the States in, in the last week, I believe, um, the Secretary of Homeland Security, I believe the name is pronounced Kirsten Nielsen, uh, came out and said that we were going to be, within the next 12 months, essentially ending the uh, temporary protective status for, yeah. do, do, do you yeah. say Nepali or Nepalese? Um, Nepali is the preferred way for that. Okay. Yeah. So for uh, Nepali citizens who had come to the United States essentially after the earthquake, um, and the quote right. within that literature said that um, Nepal has made substantial progress in post-earthquake recovery and reconstruction. Uh, I just wanted to hear from someone who's had his boots on the ground. Is that accurate? Um, have things recovered or are people still in need of assistance? Yeah, I think it depends on your definition of recovery. Mm. Um, Nepal has made strides um, psychologically. I think everyone's just become adjusted to the new status quo. There have been efforts made um, towards reconstructing homes and um, moving on. Uh, For the poorest of the poor, for the people who lack other resources, I mean, they've reconstructed, but they're living in in homes made from corrugated tin that were given out during the reconstruction process by relief agencies. They haven't moved into proper, you know, housing. Um, But that's the story of the poor everywhere. And the government hasn't um, distributed, they've only distributed a few hundred dollars of the um, two or three thousand dollars pledged. to everyone who's lost a home in the, earth, in the earthquake. Wow. So in terms of the interesting thing about the TPS 
you know, is that, um, to be perfectly frank, like a lot of the people who qualified for the TPS, you know, were people who were already here, uh, in the States, you know, who were actually a crucial lifeline to their families back in Nepal, being able to, to have the TPS status, allowed them to work, allowed them to, um, be above ground, uh, to send money home, to support their families. And that actually is the crucial piece of that, uh, ruling that really supported Nepal was that it, again, we, it goes back to the importance of remittance. And when you look at, you know, studies have been done of, of communities, you know, after natural disasters and by and large, the largest factor for recovery is actually having an income for poor families, the largest factor for recovery is having an income outside of the household, having an income mm. um, off the farm, as it were, because it allows it gives people the cash to be able to get their footing again. So that's the the real tragedy of the TPS is that I think that in terms of the formal recovery in Nepal, you know, there's still schools to be built, there's still homes to be built, but these are it's been long enough now, three years on, that these are becoming more of the general status of poverty in Nepal and not so much acutely focused on the earthquake. But withdrawing the TPS status, what that does is that it, it uh, for, you know, nine, to, I've heard 9,000 officially. I've also heard there's 15,000 people under the TPS uh, from Nepal. Wow. What it does for them, though, is that it, it, it creates a lot more insecurity um, and, and, it reduces their earning potential and ability to really support people back at home. And, um, you know, I think that, we, you know, like you mentioned, you know, being political, I think we all fall on different sides of the immigration debate, but I, I have many friends who are staying here in, in America under the TPS status. And, you know, they're all people that are contributing to America and that, that very much want to be a part of our society and our community here. And, and, you know, it, it is the kind of thing that um, when you look at the immigration um, numbers and issues in America as a whole, it's a drop in the bucket. And it is a bit of a kick in the teeth um, to Nepal to be withdrawing that. And it was, you know, the, the withdrawal was announced on the third anniversary of the earthquake, you know, which just, you know, ta lacks a bit of tax. Um, so, yeah, so that's the real hard thing for Nepal. It, but it, I think, it, you know, frankly, it has less to do with the earthquake recovery and more just with the general, the general um, poverty of the country. Hmm. You know, it's just one, one more challenge they face. I mean, uh, Ben, I appreciate you being candid. That, that actually uh, sheds a lot of light on it for me. It, it, it was like you mentioned, like the, of the total population of immigrants in the country that the uh, Nepali immigration was a drop in the bucket. I think that's why too, for when I read that, it was just kind of a curious move but I mean, you know, without getting yeah. too, too far into the weeds, like was obviously it, it fits the political agenda of, of the administration right now. But, um, totally. well, it was really interesting, you know, when, you know, I, um, there's a really cool, um, Nepali organization, uh, based out of Jackson Heights, uh, called, mm. uh, Avaz, which means like voice in Nepali. It's A-V-A-A-Z. Um, and they were, very instrumental in the um, implementation of the TPS program. Oh, really? And they're really, a really great advocate uh, for the Nepali diaspora. And but what they were kind of, what we were all talking about when the TPS was, was given is that, you know, in the past with El Salvador, with other places, 
you know, it was kind of a thing where the TPS was never really withdrawn. It was sort of a loophole in American immigration where once you get TPS, the assumption was that it would be renewed, you know, perpetually, like for a long time. And it becomes sort of a backdoor to citizenship for people. And um, so there was a lot of um, a lot of celebration around that. When people were given the TPS, it was assumed that it would last longer than it did. But I think that, you know, you know, as you mentioned, the, 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 uh, the withdrawal of that, um, the rescinding of the TPS, of course, is just, you know, it's a talking point um, to a certain sort of core demographic that is uh, intimidated about immigration. And so it's, you know, basically it's a political pawn move. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's politics. It's unfortunately... Uh, in Nepal, in America, everywhere, you know, lives get caught up, um, you know, as bargaining chips in different political agendas. And I think that's exactly what happened there. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are people who who love to travel. I can't recall if I mentioned this when we were initially emailing, but um, I, I know I look quite young and I sound pretty young, but I've been working in schools for about nine years now. And I'm going to be stepping away, and um, I'm just going out there for a year. Um, you know, everywhere, everywhere I can, I can squeeze in. You know, pending, I still have money and things like that. Um, so Nepal is is definitely on my list. I wonder, I guess, very simply, like, what makes Nepal unique? As a country, like what what are what are your impressions of the country, and and I guess maybe like what could I expect if I'm if I'm going to go to Nepal? Like obviously there are nuances to yeah. people's experiences, but in a general sense, you know, like like many countries, there's you know many many facets to Nepal. Um, but what makes it unique from other countries? It's what makes Nepal unique is what makes it so difficult to describe why Nepal is so unique. But almost everyone who goes there comes back a bit of a slightly different person. And that, I don't want to be like, you know, for fear of, of sounding Orientalist or for fear of sounding a little bit like, you know, trite and cheesy about it. Um, to me, you know, I went to Nepal on a, on a four month trip and ended up spending my life there, you know, and, and this year I'm reaching half of my life spent in that country. And I, I still haven't understood it entirely. And I still haven't exhausted it in any way. Um, the longer I stay there, the more fascinating and fantastic it gets. And, and what it is, I think about Nepal is the people. It's very much like I went there for the Himalayas and for the scenery and the mountains, which is staggering and amazing and beautiful and sublime and unforgettable. But it's made that much better by the people who are a product of that geography. Um, to try to put it into words, like what you should expect is you're, you'll, you'll just meet people who, are, who have a great integrity and a great warmth. Um, there's a certain welcoming there um, to tourists, um, to, you know, um, to people of all sorts that is very hard to find in other countries. 
Um, you know, there's a lot of places that you can travel like India that are beautiful and, and mind numbing and life changing, excuse me, but, but often traveling in places like, I'm just, you know, using India as an example, like oftentimes it's a bit of a struggle. It takes energy. Um, you're worried about getting ripped off every time you get into a cab and that kind of thing. And Nepal, there are elements of that, but it's so insignificant. In general, in Nepal, you just, people are just so agreeable there. And I think I, you know, as a development worker, like just to try to explain what you're going to find, I think that, you know, as a development worker, I went to Nepal to try to help people there. And I'm still there because I feel like I haven't learned everything I have to learn um, from the way that people, people live in Nepal. There's a certain sense of community, a certain sense of kindness and integrity. That's hard to find in other places. That's definitely tied to poverty. You know, one of the, one of the things about living in a subsistence culture is you have to depend on one another to survive. And we are fortunate as travelers to dip our toes into that kind of world. And you find something there that's missing in the Western world, a certain um, attention to one another. So for you, I think what I would expect or what I would advise you to do is when you go to Nepal is to go with a rough outline of what you want to do and force yourself. Don't over, you know, don't overdo your itinerary and force yourself to be open to serendipity, to staying in a village an extra couple days because the lodge owners seem really sweet. And, you know, they have a six-year-old who wants to play Frisbee with you, you know, and you'll find that people are very willing to let you into their lives and to be very open about what their experiences in the world are. And that's sometimes very hard to find in countries that rely heavily on tourism. Um, it's, you, you, it's very easy to meet people on their level. I would also give yourself time to go to parts of Nepal that aren't so heavily trodden. Um, going on the tourist routes, going up to Everest Base Camp, unbelievable. You know, it's beautiful, it's stunning, but it's also, you know, it's catered to tourism. But if you walk a few days south of the Everest region, there's still infrastructure to go trekking, and you'll run into people who are more going about more traditional lifestyles. And those are the things that will stay with you for the rest of, the, of your life, those experiences of meeting people who live in situations um, and who have socioeconomic conditions that are very, very different than what we have in the West. And what I think you'll leave Nepal with is more of an understanding of how, what we all have in common mm. than what it is that keeps us apart. Whereas we usually go traveling because we want to see things that are different. You know what I mean? It's that kind of Nepal really provides access to that self-reflection. At least it does for me. And that all sounds really cheesy. It all sounds really Shangri-La and hokey, but somehow Nepal in a bit, in a way that's very hard to describe delivers on that. Yeah. Ben, yeah. I mean, it, it, that, I mean, that's beautiful. Like you, you've touched on a couple of themes that, that we've uh, re repeatedly been talking about on here. Um, one of those things is that every new place I go, I find that when you, when you break down to the core of somebody, we are quite similar. Um, and the, the other thing yeah. is, I saw you had written something similar to this, but you just touched on this in the beginning of what you were saying. Um, maybe it's a bit esoteric, and maybe it sounds 
cheesy to a lot of people, but I think that people who do travel and fall in love with a place, I think they understand it. Um, that sort of, I don't quite know right. why I belong in this place, but I know I belong in this place. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's why we travel is we travel to somehow get out of ourselves and to get out of the conditions under which we were formed. And the most surprising moments in travel is when you find yourself comfortable under completely different conditions. It's a different frame yeah. through which you can see who you are and, and what you like and what you don't like. And that's the great thing. And Nepal, I think allows for myself, you know, I've, I've traveled a lot in my life as well. And more than anywhere else, Nepal has offered me that vehicle to feel at home in a place that's completely alien. Mm. And there's a great joy in that. And a great, like it's a profound way of understanding yourself because there's nothing that you assume or take for granted, you know? One thing I thought was really cool, I've, I've talked about this again at length on this podcast, but uh, in my teen, in, in early 20 years, I was like heavily involved in, in, in punk music and hardcore bands. And uh, I've had a, a number of m musicians on this podcast. I saw you had made a post about a woman who possibly is the front person for, um, like the premier Nepali uh, punk band. And I'm curious about how, totally. how you got turned on to Nepali punk music. Yeah, no, the Nepali punk scene is rad. Um, so this is, that's a woman named Serena Rai. And Serena a, is a good friend of mine. And I, uh, I just made a film about her Whoa. and another friend um, who went on this kind of harebrained motorcycle climbing adventure that we did. The film's called Mothered by Mountains and it will be out, you know, it'll start to hit the internet in the next few months probably. So keep your eyes out for that. Yeah, awesome. You'll get a bit of a, a, a visual idea of of who Serena is. Um, but yeah, no, so, so in Nepal there is actually a very, um, in Kathmandu there's a very robust um punk and death metal scene, actually. The death metal in Nepal, you can, Vice did a piece on it. Uh, um, after the earthquake, um, our organization uh, got a lot of funding uh, from Napalm Death. Okay, yeah. sold a single for earthquake recovery because they played, I mean, I've seen them in Kathmandu twice. Um, so yeah, Nepalis, <clears throat> Nepali youth are, are, are pretty, um, they're pretty woke, you know, um, and so Serena, she grew up um, abroad. Uh, her father was uh, in the British Army in Singapore. And then she came back to Kathmandu with some, with kind of uh, a bunch of different ideas and, you know, was, was a bit turned on to punk as a musician. And so now there's a, there's a number of punk bands that play kind of shows at different venues. And a lot of the punk uh, musicians are women. Wow. In the, uh, in the same vein as Serena. So yeah, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a cool scene and it's stuff like that in Nepal that you can, you can fall into, you know, if you know, you don't even really know, need to know who to ask, but it's pretty easy. You know, you can see the, the sort of the, you know, their posters are up all over the tourist part of town and 
it's great. Cavendish like that. You know, there's just all these different worlds within that, that city that are crazy and chaotic and cool. Um, but yeah, the punk scene is amongst them for sure. That's really exciting because I'm, I'm, I'm taking the podcast on the road when I, when I go overseas. So, um, I might have to check that awesome. out. That's awesome. Yeah. I'll put, I'll put you in touch with her. Um, yeah. jumping. Yeah, Serena's a great rock climber as well. And there's kind of a, there's kind of an overlap between the punk and the climbing scenes, oh. which is pretty fun. Hell yeah. It suits me. I'm jumping the timeline a bit. And also Ben, if, if, if we get to a point, this is a real like yeah. informal setup. So if we get to a point where you're like, Hey man, it's way too late. Just to say, no it. um, but again, yeah, I'm, I'm jumping, enough. I'm jumping the timeline a bit, but you are currently, um, helping to crowdsource for a Nepali trail running race a uh, team to be racing uh-huh. in Spain. So tell yeah, me about that. Yeah. That is such a cool story. Yeah. Yeah. Should I just tell you the story? Oh yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so the Nepal trail running scene is also really cool. Um, we, we were, so there's, um, there's a woman named Mira ride. M I R a is her first name. There's a film out, um, titled Mira. And she was a child soldier during the civil war in Nepal who went on to win the Mountain Blanc Marathon and is one of the top sort of sky runners in the world. And she's inspired this whole generation of young women, um, ultra runners in Nepal, who are, you know, incredibly, they've all grown up in incredibly steep <laughs> and adverse situations and are very talented runners. And one of that generation is um, one of my best friends. It's this young, young woman named Chechi. And I've known Chechi for 15 years now, uh, since she was just a teenager, uh, who had left home, uh, was working for other people. She come, coming from, comes from a very difficult family situation. And she actually ended up in Kathmandu looking for work and ended up working as my housekeeper. And Chechi and I have been very close. Um, you know, we, we basically live in, in the, in the same house, you know, and a bunch of years ago, Chechi, you know, she's like just under five feet, tiny little thing. It's never, ex- you know, it's not an athlete, never exercised a day in her life. And this must've been five, six years ago. She just one day said, you know, I need a pair of running shoes. So, cause I'm going to go run the Everest marathon. And the Everest marathon is a marathon that starts at about 17,000 feet. Jesus. And is one of the most difficult races in the world that never put down below 14,000 feet. It's wow. incredibly intense. And Chechi, basically her first, she trained a little bit, but her first race ever was the Everest marathon and she got third place. And she just has this natural talent and toughness. And so over the years, she's done a lot of sort of off, these off the couch races. She doesn't really train she has a son, you know, she's balancing being a mother and, you know, looking after me and Chechi though, um, in subsequent races, she has the women's, the course record on the Everest marathon. She ran a 45 day race. That was the length of Nepal. She's the fastest Nepali woman ever to cross the country. Oh my God. Um, she just, and so she's this incredibly talented and tough young woman. Um, and like many of the runners in Nepal, she comes from, you know, very, very little. Yeah. And these are some of the best mountain athletes in the world. 
so we did a little crowdfunding because the Nepali women's, uh, this team of, of young women runners qualified for the world trail running championships in Spain. And, uh, I'm proud to say that Chechi, uh, arrived in Spain yesterday and the race is this weekend. So oh, awesome. we'll see how they do, but they're all kind of in running in the shadow of Mira and, um, hopefully, you know, they'll have, there's a chance there for them to break onto the world scene. Uh, I, Chechi's concerned. She's been talking to me since we've been in Spain. Um, she's concerned that the mountains there just aren't high altitude enough. It's a little too warm for her. Really? Is that <laughs> pretty sweet. <laughs> does the, does yeah. the, the thin air, you know, at least training in the thin air, does that give her an advantage? Well, so she's an ethnic Sherpa. So again, remember when I talked earlier about the capital F Sherpa? Mm. Chechi's ancestors, you know, came from Tibet, and there's a genetic um, sort of uh, anomaly within the Sherpas that they process oxygen in their blood differently. Wow. And that's what allows the Sherpa climbers to be so skilled and tough at altitude. And so Chechi has that genetic disposition combined with just a lot of toughness and then a great, very small, light frame for running. And so, in a way, that's a, she has a, they have a genetic advantage um, as runners, like many other populations in the world do. The Nepali athletes have never really made it onto the international scene um, simply because there isn't much sport infrastructure in Nepal. But we're hoping that we're starting to see that change now. <clears throat> Excuse me. You mentioned oh. earlier, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. Sorry. You mentioned earlier uh, your uh -huh. friendship with both friend and colleague, uh, Renan Ozturk, who is an absolutely yeah. incredible photographer. Um, yeah. What was the, the source of your friendship? D d you guys met in Nepal or you met somewhere else? Yeah, no, we met in Nepal. Renan ended up doing... He had a similar path to me. He was just a much better climber. Um, but Renan also did a study abroad program in Nepal, and I would go and talk to, you know, I was a few years ahead of Renan, and so I'd go back and talk to these study abroad programs about what I was doing, and and that's when we became friends, uh, was when he did that program. And he and I just, you know, in, in Renan, you know, Renan's a, a professional climber, uh, photographer and, and he's you know an athlete and an artist and has made his living you know as one of the preeminent sort mm. of outdoor um, artists in the outdoor industry um, and yeah Renan and I just from the beginning really hit it off I think what bonds us is this mutual love for Nepal and we just found we started doing some small projects together and we just found that we really worked really, really well together. And uh, so we've done, I think, five films together now, um, are in the process of working up the next one, although we're not sure how that's going to come out. And uh, yeah, so our friendship, you know, I think I consider Renan one of my closest friends, and but that friendship was all born out of him and I, like, you know, on doing kind of ridiculous expeditions uh, in Nepal. Uh, telling all these really, really cool stories. Uh, I really appreciate Renan because of his talent 
and his success, you know, I've had access to um, really, really high-end um, productions um, and connections with National Geographic and Yeti Coolers and some of the best sort of um, names in the industry and, and the ability to make films, you know, that are very, very professional and very beautiful. I think Renan appreciates working with me because I also provide access to a part of Nepal that you don't see as a typical climber. You know, I've got 20 years of stories and connections and cultural understanding that gives us access to people like Maldudan and the last honey hunter and otherwise that, um, you know, Renan doesn't get as a typical climber and we get to tell stories that aren't the usual, like man climbs mountain, um, sort of narrative. And I think, you know, for both of us, it's something that we really, really enjoy doing together. You had written something about your friendship with him and you, you wrote something to the effect of we did this, we did this, we, we've crashed bikes together. I'm wondering if there's, if there's a story to that. Of crashing bikes? Yeah. Oh, I mean, we, that was on that, cra- that crazy motorcycle. We had this, initially I wanted to do this film where as roads in Nepal are expanding deeper into the mountains, um, I had this idea that Renan and I on motorcycles could leave Kathmandu, do the first descent of a 6,000 meter peak and get back to Kathmandu in less than a week. That was my idea. And I initially thought we could do it in like 48 hours, but that's not possible. Um, but I had this kind of gonzo adventure idea and Renan was super into it. And then, um, we, I learned that Renan didn't really know how to ride motorcycles. (laughs) And so the idea kind of morphed a little bit and, um, we decided then that's how my, my, my punk rock friend Serena got involved and my other friend, Pasan Mamu, who's Paul's leading sort of female mountain guy. And I, 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 we thought, well, you know, this is such a dude kind of adventure. Maybe we'll have some of these Nepali women get involved. And basically, Renan and I had this, uh, this idea to do this adventure and it kind of, like many adventures in film, you, you add different sponsors and elements and ideas and it turned into this completely absurd idea of having these women ride the motorcycles and we were going to film them instead but it was completely a white male fantasy that we were like making these Nepali women try to do and to their credit it, it completely subverted it so basically, Renan and I were like trying to ride the motorcycles and film them, and we were riding in the dark on these ridiculously Whoa. difficult and steep trails, and we just just ate shit all over the place. <laughs> it was and and, the women, and Serena and the song were just laughing their asses off at us the whole time, and that's the basic premise of that film, uh, Mothered by Mountains. You know, the film ended up being a film about the film. The film was about how we have these ideas that tend to be very masculine and very Western about being badass. And we were kind of trying to prove that Nepali women were badass by making them do 
Western right. male ideas, male things. And to their credit, they just basically said, you know, the hell with you both. And they ended up kind of taking over and, and doing their own thing. And that's kind of the arc of the narrative in the film wow. is us letting go of this idea of having to be badass all the time. Is there a place where people can watch these? Is there a central place that has all the videos? Um, you know, a lot of the, the work that we do ends up in different channels you know, because we have to figure out how to pay for it. Mm. Um, so that film was funded by Yeti Coolers. Okay. And um, we have another project on there on the Yeti Cooler site on YouTube, um, Yeti Presents. That was about this uh, blue sheep hunt that we went on in Western Nepal. Um, Mother by Mountains hasn't come out on that channel yet. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be on the Yeti Presents or if it'll be part of the Real Rock series next year. So it'll it's a pretty digestible film, so I think it'll actually probably get some sort of attention on social media. It's just not released to the public yet. But stay tuned. Um, it, will, it should be touring with Banff. I think it's touring. Um, it premiered at Banff this year, and it, I think it's part of the touring lineup, but I, I actually can't remember. Can you please write a Yeti's handling distribution. Can you please write a book? I mean, it it, it sounds like you have <laughs> stories for days, man. Well, that's the you know honestly that's sort of like I haven't I haven't gotten rich living in Nepal for twenty years, but I I have accumulated a lot of stories, mm. and yeah, I'd love to write a book one of these days. The problem is I'm still too busy um, gathering content, so no, yeah. one of these days. Um, if people still read books by then, something will happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the film, uh, which was like sort of the impetus for this conversation. I thought maybe that I would give sure. a synopsis, but you know, you worked on it. So can you give folks just like a, a brief overview of what The Last Honey Hunter is about? Yeah, The Last Honey Hunter is a film about, um, it's a character study of a man named Mauli Don Rai. And Maulidan lives in a very, very isolated village called Sadi, which is still, you know, about three days' walk away from the nearest road. Um, the Sadi is a, a, a Kulum Rai village. The, the, the tribe that lives there are very, um, they're, they're animists, and they're very, very connected to the natural world through shamans and forest spirits. And Maulidan is the only person in the village who has had a special dream um, th in which a forest spirit basically um, gives Maule permission to travel um, into the jungles and to climb these incredibly steep and dangerous cliffs to harvest the honey um, from these wild bees that are the largest bees on earth. And so the film is about Maulidan doing these incredible physical feats, braving 100,000 bees to get um, this hallucinogenic or toxic honey from these six-foot-wide beehives, 300 feet off the ground. And the film tells the story of sort of his relationship to his industry and what he thinks about the process of harvesting the honey, what he thinks about the dream and his relationship 
to his own culture and the, and that spiritual world of his. It's a melancholy film. It's an art film. Uh, we shot it uh, using um, very, very sort of high-end cinema equipment in very, very difficult situations. Yeah, I was going to ask about but that. But it comes out being a different type of documentary. It's not mm. the classic, you know, and now the man scales the cliff, the harvest the honey. It's not a narrative. Uh, it's very much said in his own words and the words of the other men who travel with him yeah. on his, um, to get the honey. And it's, it's a, it's a really, it's a portrait of a, of a man who is sort of somewhere caught between a blessing and a curse. The, in, in terms of the logistics, were you using drones? Like how were you getting these, like these close up mm. views of him, you know, essentially ripping the honey out of these nests. It's, it's wild. Yeah, that was, you know, Renan and I were hanging um, on the cliffs with Whoa. Maole. Um, you know, we were wearing bee suits. Maole didn't, you know, no. he, he, he used his usual attire, which was basically nothing, um, normal clothes. And so we shot a lot of that high angle footage um, from, you know, ropes. You know, it, oh, yeah, with with these, you know, we had these really, really high-end uh, red cameras and these ingenue lenses. It was really beautiful. The filmmaker's dream. <clears throat> but we shot it from up on the cliff with him. Wow. There were drones. Um, we did we did shoot a lot of the scenics and landscapes and that kind of stuff with drones. But <clears throat> it's very difficult to shoot the close-ups with the drones because when you're piloting a drone, you can't necessarily see how close you're getting to the cliff. Um, and it was way too risky to get that close to Maui with the drones. We had to shoot that with ourselves in there in the action with them. The honey, I suppose, when processed, is said to have both medicinal and psychedelic properties. Um, can you speak on that? Is that accurate? Yeah, I think the psychedelic properties are, I think it's, it's toxic. It's poisonous. Mm. You know, um, the honey is from um, these forest plants. Some say rhododendrons, although I, I, I've studied it in more depth. I think it's a different local plant called bulu. But the um, the honey is full of uh, these granotoxins, which are chemicals that are like neurotoxins, and it's poisonous. And if you take enough of the honey, you basically lose all motor function, you, you retain your consciousness, but you lose bowel and motor function for 24 hours. Maybe you hallucinate at some point while you're like, you know, shitting your pants for 24 hours, but it's not like a psychotropic, it's not the kind of thing you want to do like at a club, you know? Um, right. But I think that the term hallucinogenic honey was a fix to it, you know, some time ago, and that's what everybody sort of gravitates towards. But truthfully, it's it's poisonous honey. Although there is a robust black market for it uh, in Korea mainly, where people use it in small doses for uh, vitality, or even some say, you know, as an equivalent to Viagra. Although I can't quite understand how that works, but. Who knows? And there were a few Koreans who, who overdosed, right? Yeah, that's the word. Um, 
it was sort of like a gray market for a while. Like I think it, it was exported legally to Korea. Um, but then after these, all of a sudden, um, that legal export was banned. So the price for it dropped greatly. And the understanding is that two people overdosed. Some people assumed that actually they overdosed on adulterated honey. Mm. But the truth, I don't, I don't know if we could ever figure out really what happened. So something like ayahuasca is, is sort of, you know, in in like uh, like self-help groups and things like that. And it's also sort of becoming yeah. a, a tourist economy in itself. It, I mean, I was thinking of this when I was yeah. watching the film, but like there's no chance that people start trekking to Nepal to, to try this. Is, is that a possibility? No, because it's awful. <laughs> I mean, like, the honey is not like there. You don't see God. You don't connect with your ancestors. Like literally you like, you know, you literally lose bowel control for 24 hours. And like, it, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. You know, I mean, I've, I've taken enough of it to feel really nauseous, um, which was about like, I don't know, half a tablespoon maybe. Um, and I would, you know, like I have no desire ever to eat this stuff again. Like it, it's not, it's not the kind of thing that while you're throwing up, you sort of have these great visions of the nature of the universe. I just don't, I just don't think this drug works that way. I think, I think you'd be, there's, there's better ways to get high. Yeah. Not to harp on it, but I mean, essentially this is what this man is, is doing. Like this is his purpose is to extract this honey. Uh, like mm. who's buying it or are there other uses or are people buying it because of the potential hallucinatory yeah. effects? Well, there's a market for it. You know, it gets, um, like I said, after the, after the market in Korea fell apart, um, there's less of a market for it than there used to be, but people still buy it. You know, and it, some of it gets sold locally, but a lot of it ends up in Kathmandu. You know, even though these communities are so remote, they are, through trade networks and things, they're connected. And all this stuff gets scurried away into the dusty back alleys of Kathmandu and then who knows where. So Malay and those guys get paid, and that's why they do it. They don't do it for their own consumption. Right. Have you shown the film to Malay? Yeah. Yeah, no, we... Uh, we premiered it in Nepal at his house. Oh, wow. Uh, Renan and I were, were able to get another sort of paying gig that we stopped. We, we sort of stopped the helicopter in the village on the way up to the Everest region and spent a few days there with him. And, um, and so we showed it, uh, we showed it at, to the, the community in Saudi. Uh, it was very important for us. We went, to great lengths to make sure that the film was something that the community would appreciate. Yeah. And we were very nervous showing it to them, but they, they definitely liked it. They thought it was too short. I think they wanted it to be sort of like a three hour Bollywood epic. Um, <laughs> but you know, for us, 35 minutes was about all that, all that we could, uh, all that we could manage. I got a couple of places that I want to ask you about. And then, I'll let you go. Um, cool. And everyone that's listening can find out all your information in the show notes. I'm going to link to the films and your social media and things like that. So um, you have yep. 
photos and some things you've written about from a couple places. One of them is also the name of an Appleseed cast uh, record, which is really good, but uh, sorry if I'm mispronouncing, but uh, Sagarmatha. Yeah. Um, just, again, general impressions of the place. Sagarmatha, you know, is the, um, that's sort of the Nepali name for Mount Everest, the goddess mother of the ocean. Oh, okay. And, and, and so Sagarmatha is also the name of the national park in the Everest region. Oh, okay. So I've spent a lot of my life up there. Uh, when I was running Forest Progress and things, I lived there. And so it's a very special place to me. Um, it's, uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating part of Nepal, both very wealthy because of tourism, but also incredibly rugged and beautiful. And uh, there's nowhere else on earth where you can get mountains mm. and relief like that. It's a pretty sweet, special place. The other place within Nepal that I wanted to ask about was um, Mustang. Oh, yeah. Tell me about yeah. that. Mustang's amazing. Mustang is this, um, you know, it was a kingdom that, it was an autonomous kingdom, like, within Nepal uh, up until basically, you know, the monarchy was abolished in 2006. But it was only open to foreigners in 1992. And Mustang is up on the Tibetan Plateau. It's on the northern side of the Nigiri, Belgiri, Annapurna Ranges. And it's this high, dusty... Tibetan desert that's because it's been geographically a part of, or politically a part of Nepal, it was spared some of the ravages of the cultural revolution in China and in Tibet. And so people say it's one of the last little oases or little islands of pure Tibetan culture. Hmm. And it's a, it's a truly magical, magical place. Um, and very ancient you know, there's still um, monasteries and relics that that date back to the 8th century. Um, you know, there's an incredible history there that's really palpable. And it's also in this incredibly beautiful and barren landscape. Um, it's changing very quickly uh, because of the addition of the roads and the changes in economies and that kind of thing. But it's, uh, it's an incredibly cool place. Uh, it's Definitely, any if anyone has a chance to go there. Like if you go to, you know, getting to Mustang is a little expensive. It's a restricted area. You have to pay higher permit fees, but it's totally worth it. It's really, really special up there. Awesome. The final place I want to ask you about is not within Nepal, but it is one of the first places I plan on going uh, when I take this year-long journey, and that is Bhutan. I'm wondering how you found your experiences there. Yeah. Bhutan's fascinating. Bhutan's fascinating for me because I've lived my life in Nepal. And so when you go to Nepal, we go to Bhutan wearing with, with Nepalese glasses on, it's a, it's a fascinating country. You know, Bhutan has the same type of geography. Um, culturally, it's, it's very different from Nepal, but not entirely different. But, you know, Bhutan's government you know, it's all centered around the monarchy there. And, and for better or for worse, um, you have a, a very powerful state mechanism 
And so Bhutan is like Nepal with like great infrastructure. <laughs> and it's fascinating to see. It's fascinating to do both. So if you do go to Bhutan, go to Nepal as well. Like yeah. the flights from Kathmandu to Paro are like actually much better than from anywhere else. And given the contrast of the two, I think makes both better. Um, Bhutan is much more heavily touristed and it's much more of a tour kind of, um, place, you know, you, you, you're required to be on your tour, you know, it's, it's more people, not everyone's wearing like trekking clothes, you know, it's, um, much more organized and in some ways sanitized, but it's the art, um, the ancient zongs and the landscape there is, it's just awesome. You know, like you can't, you can't not like Bhutan. Um, there is, you know, it's a fascinating place when you look at the political history of it, but it also like for me in Bhutan, you know, when I got back to Nepal, it also made me sort of savor some of the chaos and some of the, um, you know, Nepal's real rough around the edges and there's a beauty in that too. It's not, as sanitized and you can get off the beaten path in Nepal on your own much more easily and have those, um, true and genuine interactions, I think a little more easier in Nepal and in, in Bhutan, it's, you're more stuck on the tourist route, even though there are ways and places you can visit that are less touristy, it's all still somewhat managed for you. And mm. so that's not a bad thing because you're, experiencing something that's truly incredible, but it's different. So I loved it. It's definitely worth checking out. And, you know, Bhutan's changing. And the tourism scene in Bhutan is going to change very quickly. You know, I think there's a lot of talk of them opening it up even more. And oh, wow. So, you know, right now is definitely the time to go and to get into some of the more remote parts of the country, you know, like definitely do the Paro, Timpu, you know, Punaka kind of circuit. But if you can, you know, try to head south into the jungle, sort of try to head, you know, into like the Ha Valley or these other places that are less popular. Um, and you'll see like a, a very cool um, part of the country. The thing I loved the most about Bhutan was the architecture. It's mm. really, it's actually really quite, quite um, sublime. I really like, the, you know, the landscape is just great to travel through. Awesome. Is there anything that you want to plug, anything you're working on, anything that people should check out? No, I think just, you know, stay tuned. Um, it's a constant, you know, we're kind of always in the spin cycle. Um, I think the thing I would plug would just be for, you know, listeners and so on and so forth, again, would be one of the things I get being both sort of like a, a, a filmmaker and a nonprofit runner, I get, People ask me all the time about coming to Nepal and volunteering and getting involved in that way. And I would just say, hey, you know, in general, the people, you know, go to Nepal to have your own adventure. And to a degree, that experience of connecting with yourself and connecting with other people is the most important thing. And to you have to be careful the volunteerism scene and all that there. It's, it's, it's better to just go and be a little selfish because that ultimately is what's going to change um, other people as well as for you to make those discoveries within oneself. And that was, that's been my path. So that's my unsolicited like preaching moment there, but no, 
come hang out, look me up. Cool. You know, um, I'm, I definitely still respond to all my DMS on Instagram. So hit me up if you guys need a Nepal advice. Ben, thanks, man. It uh, really was an honor. I appreciate it. Oh, totally. Tim. I appreciate, I appreciate you looking me up and, uh, best of luck to you. And hopefully uh, we can do like a follow-up when you're in Cavendu. All right, folks, that was Ben Ayers. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. As always, thank you for listening and take care of each other. Mm-hmm.